Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Edith Santo. Edith is assistant professor in religious studies at the University of Alabama. She's previously been teaching at the University of Toronto and at the American University of Iraq and Soleimani. Edith, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. You've had a, a really big impact on, on my own work personally, so I'm very thankful for that and also keen to, to talk a bit more about what you've been doing as well. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure, Edith. So, as always, I, I'd like to start by asking what prompted your interest in in studying religion and studying the Middle East more broadly, please? That is an excellent question. Thank you. I have been interested in the Middle East, broadly speaking, I think since I was a child, given that for us Europeans, uh, the Middle East was always a neighbor and it is the place where <laughs> we traveled to uh, as uh, when we were younger. Uh, over the summers and the winters, we would sometimes take uh, tours to go to Turkey and to go to North Africa, in particular to Tunisia and also to Egypt. It was an easy destination and it was magical. For me, as a child, my father also loved sitting down with men in the bazaar and would love to debate things with them. History, ideas, politics, everything. And I really enjoyed that. And to some extent, I never got enough of that. And I think I wanted to continue that Amazing. Um, throughout my life. That is what originally got me into it. Okay. Then, mm -hmm. Was there a particular incident that you remember from from your time traveling across Turkey and Tunisia that, that really piqued your interest? Or is it just this sort of cumulative effect, would you say? I mean, tell you about two little incidences. One, I was about mm, perhaps third or fourth grade, and we went to Turkey, and my father bought us, as my sister and myself, he bought us these quote-unquote harem pants and these lovely embroidered tops and and headbands and we walked around in those <laughs> we like to dress up we went to the bazaar and my father had this lovely conversation with a couple of men there about the animal that prophet muhammad rode up to heaven in and or heaven on and uh, this animal is called the Burak, and these men were extremely impressed by my father knowing all these details <laughs> right and I thought that that was really quite lovely, and I, I remember that. The other incidents, I was roughly in seventh grade or so, so I was um, what in Germany already was considered high school. And at the time, this was in the 90s, early 90s, the whole question of racism had just become salient in education, uh, educational circles in general. And... My friend and I, we came up with this exciting idea to perform an ethnography and then write about it for the student newspaper. Amazing. So that we decided we'd dress up and we put on scarves and we tried to dress up as Turks to see whether or not Turks, Turkish women in particular, veiled women, were dis uh, discriminated against in Germany. <laughs> right. Probably did not look like Turkish women. <laughs> we probably did lots of things wrong, but it was interesting we found that women reacted to us in a more hostile manner as compared to men. 
And we found that really interesting. So we wrote about that for the student newspaper. So that was my first ethnography on Islam. Wow. Okay. Amazing. So I can see why uh, there would be an interest growing in you then. So when you um, when you decided to go to university, what did you study? When I went to university, I first began with psychology. Okay. However, I found that a lot of people who study psychology study it in order to study themselves. Not, of course, that we don't do that in other fields also, but we certainly do. But I found religious studies to be fascinating. I found particularly the study of religion, broadly speaking, and also the study of Islam to be not just fascinating, (laughs) I guess uh, perhaps use a a superlative there, but it was... uh, I like I like the stories. I liked thinking about different rituals. I liked thinking about different peoples. And then the opportunity arose to go and study abroad in Cairo. Right. And I went there and I studied there for one semester and I was absolutely in love with Cairo. And I fa- wanted to find ways to go back. Okay. Oh, was that for, for language or was that just as a, as a study abroad type program? The study abroad program, uh, which allowed me to go, had a language component, but it was not strictly language. I also took a class in uh, Islamic philosophy. That was fascinating. We mainly talked about Aristotle's ideas and how they were translated into Arabic and then later onwards were retransmitted to Europe. Another one which was fascinating was the family the history of the Arab family. That was a fascinating course because it taught me that in fact in history we don't move from conservative to liberal societies, that things change all the time and that things are not necessarily predictable either. And also that it's it's not that we have it so much better nowadays, not to say that we certainly don't benefit from things like technology, but there have been different times in history where other peoples help themselves in other ways. Um, in particular, I found a book that um, the instructor at the time used, and it was her own, um, it was called Making Big Money in the 16th Century. It was about court cases in the 16th century and how women would divorce their husbands and then would remarry them and write stipulations in their marriage contract, such as, I will be allowed to go to the um, public um uh, baths and you will give me this much money wow, every day okay. and uh, I will not have breakfast with you on certain days. Huh. I find it fascinating. Yeah. The kinds of yes, what it revealed about peoples in other times and that those people were simply also people. Sure. found it fascinating and I loved it and I just fell in love with this whole notion, yes, of studying the Middle East. I'm sure one could have studied else other places too. Yeah, of, once of I course. started I couldn't yeah. And then you you decided to to continue this study for a PhD, for some doctoral work. Is that right? That's right. So at first I then did my master's, and I did my master's at the University of Texas at Austin, also on Egypt, because I thought that it would just be easy to go back there. I knew the layout of the land, so to speak. And I easily I found a project easily, because I knew where these mosques were, yeah. and I could find access to various learning groups at mosques that were open to a a master's student from outside um, sitting there. 
Then I applied for a Fulbright, and a friend of mine told me the night before it was due, you might think about applying to Syria instead of Egypt. Why? Because everybody studies Egypt, or at least the number of applicants will be much higher as compared to Syria. So then I thought about this, and I thought, actually, this is true. And I wanted to study shrines. I find shrines fascinating. I find the emotional response to shrines absolutely ripping. And since the same shrine that exists in Egypt also exists in Damascus, I simply rewrote the proposal and was able to go to Syria where I spent a semester at first to study language. And then I went back. And at the time I worked for UNHCR in Damascus and also for UNDP, so the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and also United Nations Development Program. And I got a little bit of insight into the workings of development agencies through that right. in Syria. And that was a, yeah, and that gave me a different um, view also, an added um, aspect to religious movements there, other than simply. A theological perspective, shall we say. Yeah, of course. When was this, Edith, if you don't mind me asking, please? Mm-hmm. This was in 2004. Right, okay. Between, yeah, between 2004 and 2005 is when I went there the first time. And then I started in Toronto in 2006. Right. Okay. So your your PhD looked at um, at twelve Shia practices in Syria and shrines. So I was, I was curious as to how you got the move from Egypt to to Syria, but but that seems to be relatively um, accidental, perhaps. <laughs> but that, that's that's really interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about the thesis, if that's okay. I know you're you're trying to develop some of these ideas for a for a book that I'm sure will be absolutely wonderful. But before we get there, what's the what was the thesis then? Thank you. The thesis looking at these Iraqi refugees who were mainly Shia in Syria became that their forms of rituals which emphasize suffering this is a bit of a functionalist definition but that it reflected and uh, spoke to their experiences and that it allowed them these rituals allowed them to spell out um, their relationships and also their thoughts regarding what had happened in their lives in a more shall we call sublimated manner in short, it's about it was about self-flagellation rituals and how these self-self-flagellation rituals allowed them to become active participants within their worlds. Self-flagellation prior to this had often been seen as a passive way of interacting with the world. And my argument was in a world where rituals had now been contested because these particular rituals had been banned elsewhere and also partly in Syria, that this be, that these rituals became sites of political contestation over religious authority. Right, okay. That, that's really interesting and really important, I think, um, in, in helping us understand a, a whole host of different issues. But could you tell us which sites in particular you were focusing on and why, mm-hmm. please? Mm-hmm. When I came to Syria, I found that most of the Iraqi refugees 
lived in particular areas. Among these were the suburbs of Saida Zainab, and Saida Zainab is the is was the granddaughter of Prophet Muhammad. She has several shrines out in the world. Uh, one of them, one of the most important ones, is in Cairo, where she's visited by Sunnis and also Coptic women, and uh, who mainly plead for um, pregnancy when they go to visit her um, in Cairo. And in Syria, I found that uh, Saida Zainab's shrine was mainly surrounded by Iraqi refugees, but also Iranians who would come and visit her. To some extent, some local Syrians, but the Syrians were mainly Sunnis in the area, and as such were slightly less interested, though some of those would also come. And so Saida Zainab as a shrine and a shrine compound, as well as a city uh, shrine city, became the focus of my work. Um, to a lesser extent, I also looked at Saida Ruqayya, that was another shrine that was in Damascus. Uh, pilgrims would also go there. However, that shrine being close to the Umayyad Mosque, the bazaar, and... Um, packed in the old city of Damascus, was not at the center, shall we say, of a growing Shi'i community, though they certainly visited the place. Okay. But Saida Zainab became my place. Right. Okay. So tell us about that place then. For people who've not had the pleasure of going, what is the place like and... And how is it shaping the, the sort of the, the world around it? And how are our individuals and worshippers who go there sort of shaping that world through their process of self-flagellation? Let me add, I wish I could go back these days. And yeah. I wonder when it is possible. But <clears throat> this particular place started out as a tiny little village. It was a farming community in the 40s. And uh, when, uh, when the first ref well, first people started arriving, they started arriving from Palestine and the Golan Heights in the 40s. And then also throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s, we had there were new waves of peoples coming in, particularly after the also 67, 68, we had um, peoples coming from the Golan Heights who started to settle there. So there were the first initial inhabitants, these were local farmers, then there were Palestinians, and then there were those coming from the Golan Heights. These were generally Levantine, shall we say, people, right. okay. in the plural. They were often still from a rural background, some of them at least from a more rural background. Um, and they participated in this budding um, town. Then the town, um, the, as the town grew, the shrine also grew. The shrine town, by the way, is roughly 15 kilometers south of Damascus. So it is within, it is relatively close by, that it wasn't yet enveloped by the city. Right. It was still its own place. And over time, as it grew, um, also more and more, it also gained religious significance for Shis. At first, we, uh, there was um, Saidan Mohsen, uh, Mohsen, who was, in, um, was a Shi'i cleric in Damascus. He 
try to attract um, donors who would uh, expand the shrine and who would elaborate the shrine. And he did not necessarily think that she was actually buried there. That wasn't his important issue. He thought that people ought to have a place to go and that the shrine was in itself a good place or was a place of healing and that it would be a that would contribute positively to people's rituals and practices and as such he wanted to attract them so the the good of the practice outweighed the question of authenticity in his mind yeah okay then mm -hmm, then from the 70s onwards we um slowly but surely uh People start coming, she start coming from Iraq. At first, these were students. They were not necessarily Iraqi. They were all those that were kicked out of the Iraqi shrine cities because um, of the growing tension between the Ba'ath and the Shia in Iraq. So these included especially Afghan students and teachers from Najaf and Karbala. Those started to arrive first. They started to settle down. They started to institutionalize. Um, it was um, Hassan Shirazi at first who came by and um, he helped build the Zainabiyya. That was one of the first schools there. And over time, dozens more were built. Sometimes it was the same students and the same faculty that would circulate between these different schools. Other times, schools had their own separate faculty and students. These expanded, so at first these were uh, Iraqis in particular, students coming from Iraq, even though they were not necessarily Iraqis themselves, there were also Iraqis who started coming. The Iraqis also started coming throughout the uh, the 80s, the Iran-Iraq war. Then again, during the 90s, because of sanctions, and of course, after 2003, with the American war in Iraq. There are new waves of... Uh, asylum seekers that came and that settled down there. They were also helped by the fact that the Syrian government at the time followed a pan-Arabist policy, Mm -hmm. which allowed any and all Arabs, that is including Iraqis, to benefit from public services such as health care and schooling. And this contributed to a growing population in the shrine town of Saida Zainab, together with the growing friendship between the Syrian and the Iranian government, which also facilitated uh, the pilgrimage or the the tourism from uh, Iran to Syria. Right. Okay. You've got this really interesting set of, of identities there, each with their own sort of cultural backgrounds, their own historical experiences, yet... sharing this this ritualistic faith or set of practices concerning Mm -hmm. uh, concerning their faith yes it's really really fascinating it was interesting that it was it was rural it is a rural place it was a, a small little shrine town that had been a village there's certainly no high-rises there. There are a couple <laughs> of hotels that right, yeah. <laughs> at a couple of floors, but nothing very large. Yet it was very international. Mm-hmm. It was very international in one sense. In another sense, there was a clear understanding that 
many at least there were Shia, even though of course the locals were Sunni, but nevertheless there. So there was a particular Islamic slant to this place. There was an understanding of everybody clearly knew why everybody was there for, yeah. to visit the shrine town and, uh, and the shrine and that this shrine was often seen as conducive to healing, uh, which people wanted. At the same time, yes, you're right, it was extremely diverse. There were Lebanese restaurants, there were Iraqi restaurants, there were Yemeni restaurants there. Right, okay. It, <laughs> um that, of course, I for, for at least Syria at the time there, that, that was extremely diverse. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, multitude of languages also being spoken. There were also Indians there as well. Right, of course. Yes, Indians and Pakistanis. Occasionally, um, you saw people from even further east than that. Right, and okay. And also, um, some even came there. There were some... Um, uh, that uh, that came from Africa, right? And then there were those that uh, that were returnees from Europe and North America. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly diverse, but not in a typical modernized, westernized sense that as we imagine it. Sure. Okay. So that it sounds like a, a fascinating space to be studying, as well as all of the the vibrancy and the rich. Um, the mm-hmm. sense of perhaps amorphous community that's that's emerged there. Um, Absolutely. I, I'm going to uh, sort of push the direction slightly differently mm-hmm. whilst keeping focus on Seda Zainab in the sense that the first thing of yours that I read, Edith, was a paper, a, a paper published in the International Journal of Middle East Studies in 2012 looking at this topic, Sayyidah Zainab in the State of Exception, Shia sainthood as qualified life in contemporary Syria. And I came to it through um, through my burgeoning interest in Agamben. And as I mentioned, this piece really helped me to, to get to grips with what Agamben was, was trying to do, particularly in the Middle Eastern context. But can you just tell us a little bit about where Agamben fits into this study of, um, of Seda Zainab of yours? And mm-hmm. what does his work offer? What does it allow you to do when you're looking at this particular space? That's a great point. I mean, there are two points that I'd like to make on that. First, let me say that after 2009, many of the diverse peoples, the students and the teachers that were living inside Azainab at the time, um, went back to their respective countries or moved on, which means that the place no longer exists the way it did. Now we have militias coming in and out. Although I cannot unfortunately tell you more details on that. So what is interesting is that not only was this a certain kind of bubble in the sense of its internationalism, but it was also a bubble in time, not only in space. So that's first of all one. Yeah. Two, when I wrote that piece on Saida uh, Zainab in the State of Exception, my thought was that what, what I found fascinating was that this place allowed peoples who were otherwise in a state of exception in the sense that they were asylum seekers, they did, they had unclear um, legal status, they were able to gain a form of agency there despite the fact that they were in this liminal space. 
so they were between they had slipped through the cracks in a sense legally speaking they were neither syrians many of them were iraqis and had iraqi passports however the iraqis at this time faced changing laws because syria was reevaluating its laws between 2000 and uh, for really in 2009 given that they were running out of money and could no longer provide the services that they had initially provided to the Iraqis mm-hmm. and of course to others as well so there were constantly changing regimes of laws that governed not just the Iraqis but also the, um, the South Asians and other lives and that Saida Zainab, that coming together and that mourning became a way to become active and that this activity was pious and was it had this religious aspect and that allowed them to regain what I like to call while following Agamben, um, bios rather than zon. So they became politically, they had a politically active or at least relevant life, um, and they were not simply reduced to bare life. Of course, in the meantime, I'd like to ask, or I'd like to add that I've also, I've been rethinking that whole question, and sometimes in a, in a more harsher moment, I then ask myself, does that simply mean that religion allows us to sublimate and become active within these moments where nothing else works. In other words, is this a way in which religion is held up against politics? Hmm. In which case, are we... Is, is, this, is this, in a sense, a classical, shall we call it Marxian rather than Marxist move for the moment where we're arguing that it becomes an opium for the people? And I wonder about that at times. Is yeah. this what perhaps happened? I'm not quite sure. And then if it did, perhaps, then the question is, is the perception more important than what actually happened? The very fact that, in this case, thinking that they had options because they were able to articulate these options in a for better, lack of a better term, religiously meaningful way, that that allowed them to, in a sense, <laughs> again, for lack of a better term, get out of their hole, out of their dep- not depressed hole or so, but out of a, a sort of a frustrating hole where they didn't know how to act sure. and allowed them to restate what it is that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. To some extent, yes, that might, may have been what happened. Um, is this a way in which people can celebrate lives and it then becomes, yes, religious agency versus political lack of agency? Is this us, however, again, celebrating religious religion vis-a-vis politics in a place where politics is just the cause of so much horrible suffering in the case of Syria and Iraq? I think they're really interesting points you're making there, Edith. I mean, I would be, personally, I would be a little reluctant to reduce it purely through that Marxian approach 
just because mm-hmm. I think I think there's more to religion than this um, the, oh, the instrumental or the cynical view that it is this this opium. And I I don't yeah. think that that's that's yeah. an opinion that you actually hold, having read your other work, um, which gives so much right. weight to to religion and faith and and ritual. But I can understand how you'd get to that point, which is that's a, it's a difficult one to engage with when it's when it's clear that 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 set of beliefs has the capacity to to provide additional meaning to life in these pretty abhorrent political conditions. I like the way you just framed it now, and it made me think that perhaps the way in which we ought to. Um, phrase that could be along the lines of saying that it's more that people instead of being provided by religion as an avenue that they seek avenues that people automatically seek avenues to gain or to 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 gain and express their agency and that in this particular case since they couldn't express that agency in a political manner, yeah. using religion becomes a way of expressing that. Not that religion, therefore, make enables them to express that agency, but it, but it becomes an avenue yeah. for doing something. Yeah, I'm certainly sympathetic to that position, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that... That actually, I take out of out of your work, not just on say the Zena, but also your stuff on the Karbala paradigm and and elsewhere, which I think is is really powerful in terms of demonstrating the the opportunities and not necessarily spaces, but avenues, as you say, for for expressing agency. I mean, I'm I'm conscious that we've taken up a huge amount of your time, Edith, and I think we're going to have to continue this another time to talk about Karabala and and your forthcoming book project and I hope we can find time to do that soon but if I may ask one final question and that that just pertains to to a gambon I mean why do you uh, why do you think a gambon offers something to the study of Middle East politics it's a question that I've been asked regularly in recent times and I like to think that I've given a solid answer, but what do you think his work brings to the study of the region? That's an excellent question. In that case, let me add to this that over the last few years, um, as you have noted in the beginning of uh, our conversation, I've been living in Iraq, in particular in Kurdistan, and I was there since between 2011 and 2019, which means I was there during the rise and fall of ISIS. And the Kurdish region itself uh, is an autonomous region. However, the laws there also change all the time, as, of course, they did under the Islamic Caliphate. So what we have there is we have changing regimes of control all the time. And these changing regimes are articulated both with regard to uh, multiple forms of identity and identification. On the one hand, 
religion is an important aspect or because religious identities are written in one's passport. Mm -hmm. ISIS killed those that didn't agree with them. So it's not just about what kind of Muslim one is, about Sunni or Shi. It's also about whether or not this particular Sunni then accepts certain forms of authority. Yeah. Um, this also allowed them to either live or die in certain areas. I think thinking about Agamben and particularly Agamben um, helps us think about the kind of agency that people can gain within their circumstances or lose also and what it means to be politically relevant in one's particular circumstances. And I think that sometimes we must uh, recognize that political relevance is not cannot be reduced to whether or not one's vote counts, which is, I think, the common understanding when we think about democracy, but that other practices also can be expressive of not just political opinion, but it can also be, sooner or later at least, politically relevant whether or not by this we mean video games um, that are played by young people who are living under ISIS, whether or not this is a young woman under ISIS um, that is trying to talk other women out of wearing um, the, the face veil about um, whether or not education, education itself can... Um, constitute a form of agency within certain circumstances or even talking with others, um, Kurds and Arabs, marrying across lines. There are so many ways in which agency can be articulated that it is not just about regimes of life and, of course, also regimes of death. My uh, new thought is that one perhaps ought to marry um, Agamben's theories also to um, uh, Membe's necropolis. That I totally agree with you on that, definitely, yeah. Right. And I might think about regimes of death also within these places. Yes, so I think that a simple view of the nation state as something that is either black or white, that it's either about democracy or totalitarianism, doesn't help us deal with the complexity of life. And I think Agamben can point us into a helpful direction. That's a wonderful answer that I wish I'd thought of when I'd been asked to uh, to offer a similar answer to that question. So thank you. I will, I will certainly borrow that and acknowledge what you've done there, Edith. But thank you so much for joining us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And once again, I've earned, I've learned so much from from just spending time with your thoughts. So thank you so much. Thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you, Edith. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.